Excitement over the Williams shooting, murder at New Orleans, supposes he is a murderer, attempted assassination of Jules Verne, yes, that Jules Verne. Those stories and more on A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee for the 11th of March, 1886. Please be aware that some articles published in 1886 used language that we find offensive today. It was my decision to report the articles as written during that time in the belief that we must tell the truth about our history. Today's news is from the Memphis Appeal. West Point, Mississippi, excitement over the Williams shooting at Conway, Arkansas, special to the appeal. West Point, Mississippi, March 10th. The news of the shooting of T.J. Witt at Conway, Arkansas by J.W. Williams has created a ripple of excitement in our city. J.W. Williams, the accused, is a native Mississippian, a special from Little Rock stating that he fled from the state for having killed a Negro is as base and false an accusation as was ever perpetrated on an innocent man. The special to the St. Louis Republican was read on our streets tonight, and the article was condemned as a lie by those who have known him since childhood. The latest from Conway states that the shooting was justifiable. Murder at New Orleans. New Orleans, Louisiana, March 10th. This afternoon, in the hallway of the United States Court, Captain J.E. Braw and M.A. Grace became involved in a quarrel. Pistols were drawn, and Grace was killed and Braw wounded, receiving four bullets in his body. The cause of the difficulty was a suit in the United States Court in which Grace was proctor for the plaintiffs. Supposes he is a murderer. New York, March 10th. George W. Curtin, a peddler of cheap jewelry, surrendered himself to the police today as the murderer of the barkeep Mallory, who was shot in his saloon on South 5th Avenue yesterday. Curtin alleges, and the allegation has been verified, that Mallory and others some time ago robbed him of a portion of his stock, that he went to the saloon yesterday to demand restitution, and that Mallory ordered him out, threatened to kill him, and making a motion as if to draw a revolver. Curtin says he does not remember what followed, but supposes he shot Mallory. He did not know the barkeeper was dead until he read of it in the newspapers today. He says his family is starving in Brooklyn. Rape Fiend Hanged, Louisville, Kentucky, March 10th. A special to the Courier-Journal says, Last night, 25 masked men quietly took Harry Woodard Colored out of jail at Russellville, Kentucky, and hung him to the same limb that the notorious Sambo Bailey was hung two years ago. Woodward was identified as the man who attempted to outrage the 12-year-old daughter of Charles Johnson, the station, station agent at Red Oak, on Monday. Attempted Assassination of Jules Verne Amens, France, March 10th. An attempt was made today to assassinate Jules Verne. Two shots were fired at him by a young student who turned out to be the author's own nephew and who had come from Paris for the express purpose of killing his uncle. One of the bullets missed the novelist altogether. The other struck him in the leg, inflicting a slight wound. The nephew has for some time been a student in Paris and is thought to be a monomaniac. In self-defense, John Manasco, dangerously shot by Daniel O'Donnell, a disappointed politician, begins a row which may result in a tragedy. After the votes were counted yesterday, and it was known that Mr. Mike Mahan, a saloon keeper on Main Street and a prominent Second Ward politician, had been defeated, there was a general sense of disappointment among that gentleman's adherents, which was shared to a generous extent by himself. 
Mr. McMahon, who was said to have been under the influence of liquor, felt particularly incensed against those who had contributed to his defeat, and in that number singled out Mr. Dan O'Donnell, engineer of the courthouse, as a special object of abuse. Mr. McMahon met Mr. O'Donnell in front of the courthouse and taxed him with having helped to bring about his defeat. O'Donnell did not deny the charge, but sought to pacify McMahon by the explanation that as a Knights of Labor, he felt it his duty to work for Mr. Buttonberg. Mr. McMahon would not listen to any explanations and became so abusive in his language that Mr. O'Donnell struck him and McMahon fell either from the force of the blow or because of his unsteady condition. Mr. McMahon is a powerfully built man and it is hardly probable that O'Donnell could have knocked him down if he had been sober. McMahon was picked up by his friends and retired to his saloon where he informed his barkeeper John Manasco of what had occurred. Manasco put on his coat and hat, armed himself, and the two together returned to the scene of the previous difficulty looking for O'Donnell. They found him at the corner of Poplar and Main Streets in the doorway of Goodyear's drugstore right under the shadow of the courthouse. As soon as Manasco saw O'Donnell, he began the attack and struck him three powerful blows. McMahon also advanced in a threatening manner. O'Donnell, after recovering from the blows he had received, drew a big, old-fashioned Colt revolver and before Chef Cannon, who was nearby, could get to him, fired at Manasco. Manasco staggered and fell. In the meantime, McMahon had got his pistol out and was making for O'Donnell when Sheriff Cannon threw his arms around him and arrested him. O'Donnell, seeing McMahon advancing, raised his arm to shoot at him, but before he could fire, his arms were pinioned by a Mr. Murray, whom Sheriff Cannon had called to his assistance. The wounded man was taken to Walker's drugstore where his wounds were examined by Dr. Williford. The ball entered the right shoulder, ranging downwards, penetrated the right lung, and lodged under the skin, whence it was extracted by the above-named surgeon. After his wounds had been dressed, Manasco was conveyed in a carriage to his boarding house, corner of Front and Exchange Streets. His wound is considered very serious and probably fatal. At a late hour last night, he was reported as resting quietly. O'Donnell was taken before Justice Agnew, who made an investigation of the facts in the presence of the Attorney General, and released the prisoner on $3,000 bail. Mr. Weatherford and Hammer appeared as the sureties. The shooting took place at about 6.30 o'clock p.m., and before 7.45 o'clock p.m., Mr. O'Donnell was no longer in custody. Mr. McMahon was released soon after the shooting. The wounded man has been keeping bar from McMahon for some time and has the reputation of being a tough customer. Mr. O'Donnell, on the other hand, is described by all who know him as a quiet, gentlemanly, and peacefully disposed man of excellent character and reputation. The above facts are based upon the statements of reliable eyewitnesses' unquestionable veracity, and among them Sheriff Cannon himself, who was interviewed by the Appeal Reporter last night, and whose version of the facts is substantially the same as the above. Smith's Vindication, His Explanation of the Charge of Watch-Stealing Mr. J. R. Smith, charged with stealing a watch at Gates, Tennessee, called at the appeal office last night and made the following explanation. It appears that until recently, Mr. Smith has been a resident of Gates, Tennessee, where he was engaged in the business of repairing watches. Among other watches entrusted to him was one belonging to Captain Frazier of that neighborhood. On the 1st of February, Mr. Smith removed to the city, where he also engaged in repairing watches. Previous to his departure from Gates, he entrusted Captain Fraser's watch to a person who called for it in Fraser's name. Fraser never received the watch and swore out a warrant against Smith. Smith returned to Gates in custody of an officer, gave Captain Fraser another watch in place of the one lost, and the case was dismissed. 
While Mr. Smith was evidently being guilty of gross negligence, it does not appear that any criminality attaches to his conduct in the matter. The last of the archers, all three of them hanged in a mob. Important capture at Chicago, ruined by speculation, and women held for murder. Chicago, March 10th. The police made an arrest yesterday which resulted in the finding of an unexpected treasure and will probably lead to important developments. For some time past, they have been looking for one James Ryan, who is described as a variety actor, petty thief, etc. Yesterday evening, he was arrested as he was leaving a pawn shop in company with a well-dressed young man who said his name was Charles F. Monell. Both men were taken to the Harrison Street Station and searched. Nothing of note was found on Ryan. Manel had a new gold watch in his pocket and exhibited some marked signs of uneasiness over the searching process that he was literally stripped to the skin. For defense against the inclement weather, he wore three undershirts and between two of them had secured a pouch containing $83 in gold coin. After removing all of Manel's clothing, the officers found around his body a small sack made of a silk handkerchief which was filled with a rich lot of diamonds, sapphires, and other precious stones. Some of these gems were set in new gold bands, but most of them were loose. When asked to explain how these valuables came into his possession, Manel made several contradictory statements. First, he claimed to have bought them in New York. Then he said he was an actor and purchased them at various times from brother professionals who were in hard luck. And finally, that he secured them at a bargain in San Francisco from a man who had just arrived from Australia. The police found that Manel had pawned a new gold chain worth $50 for $5. From this and the fact that the setting of the jewels found on Manel's person were new, the police argued that the whole lot was stolen from some jewelry store. Several dealers and precious stones were called in to appraise the find and placed the value at $3,500 to $4,000. Manel is about 27 years old, wears a small dark mustache, and uses his tongue with remarkable fluency. Both men have been held to await the result of an investigation will be instituted. Triple lynching at Shoals, Indiana Shoals, Indiana, March 10th. The notorious Archer gang, who had been confined in the county jail for several weeks past under the charge of murder, expatiated the horrible crime at the hands of a determined mob at 12.30 o'clock tonight. The mob marched quietly into town and directly to the jail, situated in West Shoals. When the jail was reached, the keys were demanded, which were refused. The spokesman ordered them to go in. The front door was battered down, and the iron cell doors were treated likewise. After gaining entrance and spending a short time with the doomed men, they were led out in the midst of the mob and taken to the courtyard adjourning, adjoining the jail. But few words were exchanged during the entire performance. They selected the trees on which they were to be hanged when the noose was placed on their respective necks, and after exchanging a few parting words concerning their crimes, as to which no answer was received, the word was given to haul up, and in a very few moments the three lifeless bodies of John, Martin, and Thomas Archer could be seen suspended in midair on a beautiful maple trees fronting the courthouse. The mob then quietly disbanded, leaving their victims in the position in which they met their doom, and a few moments after the mob had dispersed, the court was filled with anxious parties seeking a glimpse of their lifeless forms. The people were wild with excitement. His Second Offense Detroit, Michigan, March 20th P. N. Pittman, an employee of C. W. Moore's insurance agency of this city, was arrested last night in Kalamazoo on charge of embezzling $4,000 from the New York Life Insurance Company. Pittman came here from Albany, New York, where, it is understood, he was discharged on account of crookedness. He will be held over until tomorrow. Held for murder. 
Osage Mission, Kansas, March 10th. The coroner's jury completed their work yesterday in the Sells murder case and held Willie Sells to answer the charge of murder. The boy, who is but 16 years old, still solidly adheres to his story as related Monday, but appearances are strongly against him. Lewis Smith, colored, was arrested last night for making an assault upon a car driver with a knife. Lewis took offense at the car driver for insisting upon the payment of fare. An officer, summoned by the car driver's whistle, prevented further trouble. The car driver was not hurt. This next section of the paper is titled The Courts. Circuit Court Pierce Judge. No cases were heard in this court yesterday and nothing done beyond signing a few bills of exception after which the court adjourned until Monday, March 15th. The jury in the case of Clausen against Hill, having failed to come to a verdict, were discharged yesterday. Mr. Gant and Patterson, on behalf of Andrew Harmon, have filed a suit against the Louisville, New Orleans, and Texas Railroad Company claiming $5,000 damages. Criminal Court, Douglas, Judge. In the absence of Judge Douglas, Judge Pierce held court for a while yesterday in order to permit the arraignment of about 12 prisoners, after which court was adjourned. Chancery Court, McDowell, Chancellor. In jury, in the case of Comfort versus Warner, have not yet agreed upon a verdict. The case of Kelly and Roper versus Rocco is now on trial. That's the crime news for the 11th of March, 1886 from the Memphis Appeal. Join me next time for another episode of A Year of Crime as reported in the newspapers of West Tennessee.